Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, February 29, 2024, we talk about a trial of Celadelpar in primary biliary cholangitis, a trial of elafibrinor in primary biliary cholangitis, cognition and memory after COVID-19, and simple versus radical hysterectomy in women with low-risk cervical cancer a review article on cardiac rehabilitation, a case report of a woman with alternating sixth cranial nerve palsy, and a perspective article on practicing medicine in the culture wars. We also describe a new case series on efforts toward equity in healthcare. A phase three trial of Celadelpar in primary biliary cholangitis by Gideon Hirschfield, from Toronto General Hospital, Canada, and co-authors. Primary biliary cholangitis is a rare liver disease characterized by the destruction of the small intrahepatic bile ducts and accumulation of toxic bile acids, resulting in cholestasis, inflammation, and biliary fibrosis, which can progress to cirrhosis and liver failure. Common symptoms are pruritus and fatigue. Ursodeoxycholic acid is the only agent currently approved by the Food and Drug Administration for first-line treatment of primary biliary cholangitis. However, up to 40% of patients treated with ursodeoxycholic acid have a persistently elevated alkaline phosphatase level, bilirubin level, or both, which portends disease progression. Celadelpar, a peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor, PPAR, delta agonist, has potential benefits. In this trial, patients who had had an inadequate response to or who had a history of unacceptable side effects with ursodeoxycholic acid were randomly assigned in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive daily oral celadelpar or placebo. A greater percentage of the patients in the Celadelpar group than in the placebo group had a biochemical response, 61.7% versus 20%. Normalization of the alkaline phosphatase level also occurred in a greater percentage of patients who received Celadelpar than of those who received placebo, 25% versus 0%. Celadelpar also significantly reduced pruritus among patients who had moderate to severe pruritus at baseline. The incidence and severity of adverse events were similar in the two groups. Adverse events were reported in 86.7% of the patients in the Celadelpar group and in 84.6% in the placebo group, and serious adverse events in 7% and 6.2% respectively. In this trial involving patients with primary biliary cholangitis, a significantly greater percentage of patients who received celadelpar than of those who received placebo had a biochemical response and alkaline phosphatase normalization. Efficacy and Safety of Elafibrinor in Primary Biliary Cholangitis by Chris Cowdley from the Liver Institute Northwest, Seattle, Washington, and co-authors. This study evaluated whether elafibrinor, an oral dual PPAR 
alpha and delta agonist may have benefit as a treatment for primary biliary cholangitis. 161 patients with primary biliary cholangitis who had had an inadequate response to or unacceptable side effects with ursodeoxycholic acid were randomly assigned in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive once daily elafibrinor or placebo. Biochemical response, the primary endpoint, was observed in 51% of the patients who received elafibrinor and in 4% who received placebo, for a difference of 47 percentage points. The alkaline phosphatase level normalized in 15% of the patients in the elafibrinor group and in none of the patients in the placebo group at week 52. Among patients who had moderate to severe pruritus, the least squares mean change from baseline through week 52 on the worst itch numeric rating scale did not differ significantly between the groups, minus 1.93 versus minus 1.15. Adverse events that occurred more frequently with elafibrinor than with placebo included abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. Treatment with elafibrinor resulted in significantly greater improvements in relevant biochemical indicators of cholestasis than placebo. David Assis from Yale University School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut, writes in an editorial that the trials by Hirschfeld and Cowdley and colleagues cement the role of PPAR agonists as the preferred second-line treatment in primary biliary cholangitis. The reduction in serum cholestatic markers and the safety profiles of elafibrinor and celadelpar offer clear advantages beyond what was previously shown with obeticolic acid. These trials also cement a new treatment goal for primary biliary cholangitis in which a reduction in pruritus should be expected as part of anticholestatic treatment. The results of these trials suggest that the use of PPAR agonists in primary biliary cholangitis could improve treatment outcomes while also improving quality of life, which is a highly desirable alignment of clinician and patient goals. Despite this optimism, challenges remain, and more work needs to be done for the sizable minority of patients who have an incomplete response to PPAR agonists. Ongoing studies are testing combination therapy for these difficult-to-treat cases. The findings highlight the need for a better understanding of the mechanisms by which different PPARs affect pruritus and the immune system in patients with primary biliary cholangitis. Finally, biomarkers are needed to predict responses, including which cases will require PPAR agonists after treatment failure with a first-line regimen and which will not respond to PPAR agonists. Identification of such biomarkers would enable a personalized approach to treatment. Although these challenges remain, the trials of elafibrinor and celadelpar are an unequivocal sign of progress, marking the arrival of a new era in which primary biliary cholangitis treatment is expected to provide both biochemical benefits and amelioration of symptoms for patients. In a science behind the study editorial, Bernd Schnabel from the University of California, San Diego, La Jolla, asks, how do elafibrinor and celadelpar 
function in primary biliary cholangitis. Elafibrinor is a dual PPAR-alpha and PPAR-delta agonist, and Celadelpar is a selective PPAR-delta agonist. PPAR-alpha and PPAR-delta agonists modulate several complementary pathways. A key mechanism for both drugs in the treatment of primary biliary cholangitis is the suppression of bile acid synthesis, as evidenced by lower levels of the bile acid precursor C4 and total serum bile acids. In addition, PPAR-alpha agonism is also known to reduce bile acid toxicity and reduce the uptake of bile acids into hepatocytes. These remarkable anticholestatic characteristics are critical to the efficacy of these medications. Even though primary biliary cholangitis is an autoimmune disease, immunomodulating medications have not shown clinical benefit. PPAR-alpha and PPAR-delta agonists have anti-inflammatory properties and affect both innate and adaptive immunity by switching macrophages from an inflammatory to an anti-inflammatory phenotype and by suppressing polarization of type 1 helper T cells. PPAR-alpha agonism induces differentiation of regulatory T-cells, whereas PPAR-delta agonism suppresses polarization of type 17 helper T-cells. To what degree these anti-inflammatory properties contribute to the beneficial effect of each drug is currently not known, although both drugs reduced levels of total IgM and IgG, markers of immune activation, in patients with primary biliary cholangitis, and Celadelpar decreased levels of high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. Crucially for patients with primary biliary cholangitis, Celadelpar effectively alleviated pruritus, although the specific molecular mechanism remains unknown. Although ursodeoxycholic acid will remain the first-line therapy, choices of medication for patients who do not have a response are increasing. Cognition and memory after COVID-19 in a large community sample by Adam Hampshire from Imperial College, London, and co-authors. Poor memory and difficulty thinking or concentrating, commonly referred to as brain fog, have been implicated in syndromes occurring after COVID-19, a situation that has led to suggestions that COVID-19 may have lasting cognitive consequences. However, objective data on cognitive performance are largely lacking and how long such deficits may persist and which cognitive functions are most vulnerable are unclear. In this observational study, the investigators found objectively measurable cognitive deficits that may persist for a year or more after COVID-19. 112,964 participants in England completed an online assessment of cognitive function. The cognitive domains which have been implicated in post-COVID-19 syndromes consisted of immediate memory, two-dimensional mental manipulation, spatial working memory, spatial planning, verbal analogical reasoning, word definitions, information sampling, and delayed memory. 
In a multiple regression analysis, participants who had recovered from COVID-19 in whom symptoms had resolved in less than four weeks or at least 12 weeks had similar small deficits in global cognition as compared with those in the no COVID-19 group who had not been infected with SARS-CoV-2 or had unconfirmed infection. Larger deficits as compared with the no COVID-19 group were seen in participants with unresolved persistent symptoms. Larger deficits were seen in participants who had SARS-CoV-2 infection during periods in which the original virus or the B117 variant was predominant than in those infected with later variants and in participants who had been hospitalized than in those who had not been hospitalized. In a comparison of the group that had unresolved persistent symptoms with the no COVID-19 group, memory, reasoning, and executive function tasks were associated with the largest deficits. These tasks correlated weakly with recent symptoms, including poor memory and brain fog. No adverse events were reported. Participants with resolved persistent symptoms after COVID-19 had objectively measured cognitive function similar to that in participants with shorter-duration symptoms. Although short-duration COVID-19 was still associated with small cognitive deficits after recovery, longer-term persistence of cognitive deficits and any clinical implications remain uncertain. Ziad Al-Ali from the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System and Clifford Rosen from Tufts University School of Medicine, Boston, write in an editorial that Hampshire and colleagues bring greater clarity to how SARS-CoV-2 infection might affect cognition. The results of the study are of concern, and the broader implications require evaluation. Whether one group of persons is affected more severely than others is not clear. Whether these cognitive deficits persist or resolve, along with predictors and trajectory of recovery, should be investigated. Will COVID-19-associated cognitive deficits confer a predisposition to a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia later in life? The effects on educational attainment, work performance, accidental injury, and other activities that require intact cognitive abilities should also be evaluated. SARS-CoV-2 infection happened in the context of a global pandemic that disrupted many facets of our lives. Disentangling the effects of the infection from those of the pandemic, such as social isolation, grief, and trauma, should also be undertaken. There are limitations to the study conducted by Hampshire and colleagues. The study was based on an engagement survey. Hence, there may be a degree of response and ascertainment bias. Also, there was a lack of racial diversity, which will lead to uncertainty with regard to the effects of long COVID on cognition in underrepresented populations. The SARS-CoV-2 pandemic produced in its wake millions of people affected with long COVID, some of whom have had or are currently having cognitive challenges. A deeper understanding of the biology of cognitive dysfunction after SARS-CoV-2 infection and how best to prevent and treat it are critical for addressing the needs of affected persons and preserving the cognitive health of populations. Simple versus Radical Hysterectomy 
in women with low-risk cervical cancer by Marie Plante from the Centre Hospitalier Universitaire de Québec, Canada, and co-authors. Retrospective data suggests that the incidence of parametrial infiltration is low in patients with early-stage low-risk cervical cancer, which raises questions regarding the need for radical hysterectomy in these patients. This randomized trial compared radical hysterectomy, removal on block of the uterus, cervix, medial one-third of the parametria, two centimeters of the uterosacral ligaments, and upper one to two centimeters of the vagina, with simple hysterectomy, removal of the uterus with the cervix without adjacent parametria, including lymph node assessment in 700 patients with low-risk cervical cancer lesions less than or equal to 2 centimeters with limited stromal invasion. With a median follow-up time of 4.5 years, the incidence of pelvic recurrence at 3 years was 2.17% in the radical hysterectomy group and 2.52% in the simple hysterectomy group. Results were similar in a per-protocol analysis. The incidence of urinary incontinence was lower in the simple hysterectomy group than in the radical hysterectomy group within four weeks after surgery, 2.4% versus 5.5%, and beyond four weeks, 4.7% versus 11%. The incidence of urinary retention in the simple hysterectomy group was also lower than that in the radical hysterectomy group within four weeks after surgery, 0.6% versus 11%, and beyond four weeks, 0.6% versus 9.9%. In patients with low-risk cervical cancer, simple hysterectomy was not inferior to radical hysterectomy with respect to the three-year incidence of pelvic recurrence and was associated with a lower risk of urinary incontinence or retention. In an editorial, Pedro Ramirez from the Houston Methodist Hospital Neal Cancer Center, Texas, writes that the field of gynecologic oncology is rapidly evolving with the increasing availability of new therapeutics, including targeted therapies. In parallel, the field of surgery is shifting away from the use of radical procedures to more conservative approaches with fewer risks of complications. The findings by Plant and colleagues provide evidence that simple hysterectomy in selected patients appears to be safe, yielding oncologic outcomes similar to those of radical hysterectomy. But several points warrant consideration when these data are evaluated. Accurate estimation of the tumor size and the depth of invasion with the use of preoperative imaging is critical for the selection of patients with disease that is appropriate for conservative management. Moreover, there were no pre-specified criteria to determine the adequacy of the procedure performed. Because the results from the present trial are based on a three-year follow-up, it is possible that results could change with longer follow-up. But this seems unlikely since most recurrences manifest within the first two years of surveillance. It is important to note that the trial cannot inform decisions about the surgical approach, open versus minimally invasive, because the choice of approach was at the discretion of participating surgeons. The present trial provides compelling evidence that, in patients with early-stage, 
low-risk cervical cancer. The incidence of pelvic recurrence at three years after simple hysterectomy is similar to that after radical hysterectomy, with fewer surgery-related adverse events after simple hysterectomy. However, it is critical to ensure that the use of simple hysterectomy is limited to patients who have low-risk tumors and who meet the criteria for eligibility for this conservative approach. Patients who do not meet such inclusion criteria should continue to be offered radical hysterectomy. Cardiac Rehabilitation Challenges, Advances, and the Road Ahead A review article by Randall Thomas from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Each year in the United States, more than one million persons enter the turbulent waters of recovery after a cardiovascular event, such as myocardial infarction, percutaneous coronary intervention, coronary artery bypass grafting, heart valve surgery, or heart transplantation. Surprisingly, only approximately 25% of patients who have had a cardiovascular event participate in cardiac rehabilitation, despite its multiple proven benefits. Cardiac rehabilitation is a multidisciplinary, systematic, yet personalized approach to providing evidence-based secondary prevention therapies for persons with cardiovascular disease. Eligible patients enter the cardiac rehabilitation pathway when referred after a qualifying event or diagnosis, ideally beginning within one to two weeks after the event. The goals of cardiac rehabilitation are personalized. Unstable conditions, such as unstable angina or severe hypertension, are stabilized by the healthcare team before patients start cardiac rehabilitation. Patients attend 36 cardiac rehabilitation sessions, each lasting one hour over a period of 12 weeks, during which they participate in exercise training, nutrition counseling, and educational and psychological support sessions according to their individualized treatment plan and under the guidance of their cardiac rehabilitation team. At the completion of 12 weeks of cardiac rehabilitation, patients undergo a graduation assessment that focuses on progress made toward meeting their goals. The treatment plan is then updated to help patients continue to advance toward their rehabilitation goals after discharge from the program. A longer-term follow-up plan is also developed to be carried out with the assistance of the patient's cardiologist or primary care provider. This review addresses the current science and practice of cardiac rehabilitation, as well as the lessons learned from the past that will guide future directions in cardiac rehabilitation. A 67-year-old woman with alternating sixth cranial nerve palsy. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Yanith Yin and colleagues. A 67-year-old woman was evaluated because of headache and retroorbital pain. Ten months earlier, a photosensitive rash developed while she was receiving hydrochlorothiazide. The possibility that an autoimmune condition could have led to this patient's symptoms was considered. However, a biopsy of the rash a few weeks after the initial presentation showed findings consistent with an allergic reaction that was presumed to be related to hydrochlorothiazide. 
Eight weeks before the current admission, the patient presented to the emergency department because of progressive temporal headache with retroorbital pain on the left side that had lasted for three days. The physical examination was reportedly normal and the patient was discharged home. The next morning, the patient awoke with double vision. She presented to a neuro-ophthalmology urgent care clinic and reported persistent pain in the left eye, which was worse with abduction, as well as photosensitivity. A presumptive diagnosis of acute left sixth cranial nerve palsy associated with cerebral microvascular disease was considered. Eight weeks later, at the time of the current evaluation, similar symptoms occurred in the right eye. A fundoscopic examination revealed contralateral findings indicative of acute right sixth cranial nerve palsy with optic nerve compromise. MRI of the head showed edema and enhancement of the optic nerve sheath. The optic nerve itself was largely spared. Optic perineuritis is characterized by inflammation restricted to the nerve sheath. Bilateral idiopathic optic perineuritis is rare, and bilateral findings should prompt a search for an underlying cause. Serum ANCA testing led to a diagnosis of ANCA-associated vasculitis. In this issue, we feature a series of brief case studies on efforts toward equity. Even as we document the health effects of biases and discrimination in medicine, many individuals, groups, and organizations have been doing important, innovative work in their local healthcare environments to try to alleviate and eventually solve some of these problems. This series offers glimpses of various initiatives, each of which aims to address a particular manifestation of discrimination in medicine or healthcare. We hope that they will spark ideas for efforts that other physicians and healthcare organizations can pursue. The first is on transforming the diversity of a family medicine residency program. The University of Utah's Family Medicine Residency Program analyzed and continuously revised the rubric used to select candidates for interviews and introduced structural changes to support residents. The second involves medically tailored meals to address the health consequences of food insecurity. Collaborators from Massachusetts General Hospital, Community Servings, and the University of North Carolina provide medically tailored meals for people with chronic illness and food insecurity. The third highlights a salon-based intervention to improve PrEP uptake among black women. In partnership with local communities, the Duke University School of Nursing piloted a salon-based intervention to reduce barriers to the uptake of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis among black, cisgender women in the U.S. South. The fourth describes partnering to enhance clinical trial retention of black men. Working with the community, Ohio State University clinician scientists curated trusting relationships that facilitated recruitment and retention of black Americans in a clinical trial. Visit NEJM.org or read your print issue to learn more about this innovative work. Practicing Medicine in the Culture Wars, Gender-Affirming Care, and the Battles over Clinician Autonomy. A Perspective by Michael Ulrich, 
from Boston University School of Public Health, Massachusetts. A politically motivated culture war is being waged over the practice of medicine in the United States, and transgender young people are its latest victims. Political efforts led to the 2022 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which empowered some states to prohibit abortion even in emergencies and sparked efforts to ban mifepristone. These changes limit physicians' ability to properly care for patients dealing with serious conditions such as preterm premature rupture of membranes, abruption or hemorrhage, ectopic pregnancy, and miscarriage, undoubtedly worsening this country's already horrific maternal morbidity and mortality, especially in marginalized racial and ethnic groups. Now, ongoing litigation over bans on gender-affirming care could further establish the authority of politicians and courts to determine patients' treatment options, while similarly exacerbating health disparities. Given the high rates of suicide, suicide attempts, and suicidal ideation among transgender young people, it is not hyperbole to say that lives are at risk in states pursuing these bans on needed care. The Supreme Court is likely to determine the constitutionality of such bans now that the American Civil Liberties Union has requested the court's review. This author believes the healthcare community should rally to dispute the underlying claims of medical uncertainty in gender-affirming care and ensure that these restrictions are revealed for what they are, strategic targeting of a marginalized group for political gain. In our images in clinical medicine, a man with a history of well-controlled HIV infection presented with an 11-day history of progressive painful tongue lesions and a one-week history of sore throat and fevers. On physical examination, four ulcers with central darkening and raised borders were seen on the tip and left lateral aspect of the tongue. Testing of a tongue lesion with a PCR assay for the virus that causes MPOX was positive. During the eruptive phase of MPOX, a rash is very common, but isolated oral mucosal lesions may be the only mucocutaneous manifestation, as occurred in this case. In another image, a 28-year-old woman presented with a six-month history of dry cough. CT of the chest showed mediastinal lymphadenopathy and diffuse ground glass opacities. Also visible were areas of superimposed interlobular and intralobular septal thickening, a pattern known as crazy paving because of the resemblance to irregular paving stones. The serum level of angiotensin-converting enzyme was 80 units per liter. A subsequent transbronchial lung biopsy showed multiple non-caseating granulomas. A diagnosis of pulmonary sarcoidosis was made. The crazy paving pattern is commonly associated with pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, but it is also seen in a variety of other conditions, such as sarcoidosis, as in this case. A tapering dose of prednisone was initiated. By six months, the patient's symptoms had abated and the radiographic findings had greatly improved. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent 
to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.